Good morning. Um, exciting stuff. Um, I'm, I'm excited about, you know, some of the things that are going on, too. Uh, one, one thing that's kind of coming up this year, Christmas season, too, is that we're, we've actually taken um, kind of a, a bit of a ministry uh, uh, that was in the community um, that helped uh, families to get sponsorship as far as gifts for Christmas. And while we've done that in the past, um, we've generally done probably eight families or so, maybe as a church in the past. We're actually going to bump that up to about 35 families this year. Um, and, and it won't just be just a church effort. We will be coordinating with the community as well, getting gifts in here and some of those kinds of things. So there's a lot more information to come on that. But um, yeah, exciting stuff. So grateful for that. I'm super grateful to you for these ladies that are meeting and driving forward with some ladies' ministries. I'm excited about that. I think that that's, that's going to do nothing but produce really good fruit. And so we've just got a lot of good things to look forward to. Um, so as we forge on here with our, uh, with our series, our sermon series that we've been doing, I remember we're, we're talking about the, the concept of the church and the church as a community. And, and what does that look like? We Remember week one, we talked about the idea that church isn't a building, it's not a place, it's not a destination, it's not a sermon, it's not a pastor, it's God's people who assemble together uh, to worship. First and foremost, our first and foremost primary reason that we uh, gather together is for worship, corporate worship together, and it's also to encourage one another, to hear a message together, to be moved by God, and to uh, just to find our place then within that community. So then week two, we talked about what does that look like to live within that community, and um, we, we discussed the idea that, that, like, that God has come and He's using this community, set this community up for our healing, for our spiritual growth, for these things, and there's a real necessity that, that, that we participate in those things, that we enter into even our own healing and our spiritual growth, because nobody can do those things for you. And so um, we, we, we recognize that the church has become this um, institution, if you will, by which God is at work through His people, um, bringing change and health and, and, and things to us. And so living in that community really just necessitates a, a real participation um, within that community. And today we're going to talk about the idea of the church as a community within a community, right? That we, um, that, that really that the church is made up of individual people who each bring giftings and talents and unique relationships and connections and all kinds of things. And we bring this into kind of this, this bigger pool of folks, and this is the way that the church moves. The church moves not independently, not as us just going out and doing our own things and, and being independently kind of moving, uh, but that we corporately, we compromise, a, a, we, we're composed a body that is made up of different members that, again, is moving through this world. And again, like we talked, that, that there's, there's no part of the body that's more than or better than or more capable than it is, is there's a reality that says it takes everybody that, that the church is this place where true equality actually exists and while there's a difference in roles there is equality within the church and 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 that we're supposed to all be kind of doing our part so that the church moves through the community and through the world around us as if Jesus himself were moving um, physically among us because 
the church is the means by which God has chosen to move on the world until he returns. And so, so today we want to look at it. We want to discuss this idea. We want to talk about the idea of just a community within a community. So God has strategically placed, A, you within this church body. And, and so we always talk about it. And welcome, by the way, if anybody's new here this morning or if you're new online, we're really grateful. And oftentimes we'll say, look, if you're looking for a church home, we really hope you find one here. We, we, that's our, our hope and our desire. But if it shouldn't, if it's not here, if you feel like you've checked out churches and, and, and you don't feel that the Lord is leading you to this one, then our hope is that you find a church body within this community because we're blessed here to have many great churches. And, and so we'll often say that because really we believe that God assembles his church together on purpose, that he's bringing people into this body. And, and we want people who are called into this body. And then we also recognize that this church body itself is placed uniquely within the community that we live in, in Sheridan. And that God has plans for us as a church body. Because see, there's like 20 some churches. I think there's something like 28 churches probably and growing in Sheridan right now. Um, <clears throat> not all of those churches really um, are, are continuing on with, with really being gospel-led, Bible-believing, Jesus-honoring churches. Some have kind of went away, and, 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 and some continue to, to really pursue Christ and, and what He has for us. But each church that honors Christ within this community has a unique place and role within the community. And I believe that God has one for us to fulfill as we move forward as well. So today, I want to kind of look at that. I want to kind of talk about that. I want to really talk about some of the challenges that, that we're kind of all faced with these days as church, and not just as church, but just as a nation and as just a people and kind of look through some of those kinds of things. So the gospel really is, is this idea that, that, that Jesus has come and he's take care of, taken care of a problem that we could never take care of, right, which is our sin issue. Everything about Jesus' mission was outside of himself. He was in need of nothing, but yet he came and, and died for us so that we could have life. And, and so everything about the gospel really ends in this idea that as we are emulators, as we are Jesus' hands and feet, that we are also to be outside of ourselves, that we are also to be going. And so we always look to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, and, and this is the place where, where church is really given our, our directives. This is kind of our marching orders, right? Um, <clears throat> and it says that the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always and to the end of the age. And so Jesus gives us this, this great commission. And the idea here is, is that it's, a, it's, it's the idea of while you're going. It isn't this one and done kind of a thing like now go and go do something, go make a disciple and come back. It's, it's as you're going. This is a continual process. This is something that we're always meant to be doing. This is how Jesus approached ministry. Jesus was always 
doing. Wherever he went, whatever he was doing, he had a, a kingdom perspective in mind. And remember, we talked about that as a church, that we are representatives of a greater kingdom, recognizing that there's a king and that there's a kingdom, and, and that we are to be a people who, who reflect and, and honor and bring the values of that kingdom into the world around us, that, that as the church, we're called to affect change in the world around us. We're called to go and not to make converts, but to truly make disciples, to make those who are able to really replicate themselves, who, are, who have enough understanding and knowledge about God and His plan for the world and salvation that they can go out and they can make more disciples. See, the idea is replication. The early church did this, but it wasn't in the manner sometimes that we think. I mean, if we would, and maybe arguably say that the early church began with roughly maybe 20 people, by 300 years, by the year 300, there were about 3 million believers. And that's about a 3% growth rate per year kind of a thing. So it really actually took those 20, maybe even if, you know, just with statistics, more than a year to even get one convert. But what happens is, is as that stuff starts to multiply and grow and those numbers grow, then so does the growth of the church. But it's not as big as we think. Sometimes, it, what would that look for us? We're, we're a church of about 400 total. And, and that would look like about 12 people a year would come to Jesus. So for every hundred of us who were actively pursuing the gospel out in the community, doing what we're called to do, sharing the gospel, sharing the good news, sharing the hope of Jesus, about three people per 100 of us actively doing that would be coming to Christ every year. Doesn't seem so overwhelming or so like a big job. Seems like it would take a whole lot more than that. And obviously we want more than that, but that's about the, the degree that the church has grown to. And the church now is like 2.3 billion people, supposedly, in the world. So I want to look at, I'm not going to go through a ton. You know, if you know me, you know I generally go through tons and tons and tons of, of Scripture because I know that I have very little to say about all this, but God has a whole lot to say about it, right? I mean, that's just the reality of it. And so you don't really want to hear what I have to say about it. You want to hear what God has to say about it. But I want to kind of look at this. I want to kind of think perspective, and I want to think we're familiar with the story of Jonah, right? And if you want a great study to check out, Go to Right Now Media, and a guy named Eric Mason does a really great study on the book of Jonah. Check it out. But so, so we're going to kind of look to this, and we're going to kind of think about perspective and how the approach to ministry and how we can tend to be. So, so I'm just going to kind of go through the, the story. I'm not going to go scripture to scripture. I just want us to kind of think about this and talk about this. So, so Jonah's a prophet of God, right? And he's called by God to go to, uh, to, go to uh, Nineveh right? and, and, and reach out, right? He's, he's supposed to go and, and proclaim to the people of Nineveh that, that judgment is, is impending upon them, that God has done kind of a thing, that, that their violence and their culture and everything about them has went too far, and now God is like, he's about to intervene. But before he does that, he's going to send Jonah on this mission to go to Nineveh. And the Ninevites, let's, let's give him a break because the Ninevites, are, uh, they're an awful people. Their culture is really twisted. It's, it's really terrible. Eric Mason says it would be like, you know, you having to go to and, and witness to ISIS, you know, kind of a thing. And you're like, oh, 
That's a tough one, you know. So, so Jonah's been given a really tough call to begin with. Um, does anybody else know anything else about the Ninevites? I mean, there, there is something that's really particularly bad about them. They were fish slappers. <laughs> so if, if you don't have kids, you don't probably get that. that that's a veggie tales. They were fish slappers. They would slap people with fish. Anyway, that's not biblical. I'm just kidding. So Jonah is called to, to go to, to Nineveh, to, to reach out to these people. And, and so what does he do? He goes and he gets on a ship, right? But he gets on a ship that's going the other direction, right? His, the, the ship that he gets on is, is going to Tarshish. It's not going to Nineveh. He's going to go the opposite way. He's, he's not, uh, he doesn't want to go to these people. As a matter of fact, he, 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 he hates the idea or the thought of this. And so he begins to try to escape from God, escape from his mission, escape from what his calling is on, on his life. His, his role is prophet, all of these things, and he's going the other direction. He's going to Tarshish, right? Well, as the ship goes, it says that God causes this storm to come. And, and, the, and the storm is there because this guy isn't going in the direction that God is calling him to go. He's not going to the people that God has called him to go to, as a matter of fact, he's doing the opposite. And, and the storm is just kind of swirling all around him. It's just, and, and everybody, the, the people on the boat are throwing things over the, over the side of the boat to, to lighten it and all kinds of things so that they're all afraid, they're scared to death that they're about to die. And they're all praying to their different gods and goddesses and whatever that looks like. And they're, they're trying to find some way of appeasement so that this storm will, will, will abate. And Jonah, guess where he went? He went down into the ship, and he went to sleep. And I think that this is, I mean, I, I just think it's really interesting. If we start to think about the church and the state of the church, maybe, in America today, I think the state of the church in America today is that we've went the opposite way and that we're asleep. And that God has caused a storm outside of us, and he's, he's continuing to shake things and challenge things in, our, in the culture and the world that we live around. In, in and, and is around us always. And, and we're still kind of asleep, I think, down below deck a little bit. Still just trying to kind of insulate ourselves from what's going on, insulate ourselves from the world around us, just kind of go down there and just go to sleep, pretend like it's not happening. I think we, we see that a lot. We don't really get to know our neighbors and things. We, we, we tend to be a people, and especially if you get to bigger cities, we we pull into our garage and then into our home. We, we tend to insulate ourselves within the church from the world around us. You see, if you begin to really get involved with the world around you, you'll soon discover how messy and how hard it is. And there's a reality that, that I'm just going to throw out there. If you don't understand or you don't get how messy the world is and how deep and how troubled things are in the culture, in the community that we live in right here in Sheridan, then you probably insulated yourself too much from the things that are going on on the outside. There's, there's just a reality. If our lives are kind of too convenient, too easy, going too well, if we're not having to extend ourselves, if we're not being inconvenienced by other people, then we've probably in reality insulated ourselves too much from what's going on around us. So Jonah, the captain of the ship, goes down and gets Jonah and says, look, 
I need you to get up and pray to your God because maybe your God might be the one who can get this storm to stop. Wow, what a call to prayer for the church. See, I think that we've talked about prayer. We taught about that a while back. And we cannot see prayer as anything less than the means by which anything good happens. There's a saying I like, and it says, my buddy Terrell says it all the time. He says, he says there are greater things that we can do than pray. But until we pray, there is no greater thing that we can do. So prayer is this thing that initiates everything, and Jonah is, has to be reminded to pray by this pagan captain on the ship who goes down and wakes him up and says, come on up here. You know, we need you to pray. Well, they cast lots about, they're trying to figure out who's, this, who's to blame for this, who, why is this happening? They cast lots, the lot falls upon Jonah, and then Jonah just says, yeah, that's me. This is all happening because of me, because I'm not doing what I've been called to do. Remember, we've been emphasizing, we've been talking about this the whole time. The judgment begins in the house of God. That it's not the world out there that's, that's gone. It's, it's, it's the reality that the church hasn't been the church. That's the reason why things look like they do outside. And we want to blame the world outside. We want to be upset with everybody who's doing things different than way, the way that we think things ought to be done. But really, what this call is, is for an introspection. To really say, where are we at and what are we doing? How much have we insulated ourselves? How asleep are we? So Jonah just says, you know what? Um, why don't you just throw me overboard? Because that'll help. That'll, that'll do it, you know? And these guys have so much integrity and so much care for Jonah's life that they don't throw him overboard initially. What they do is they start rowing. They start rowing really hard, trying to get to shore, right? But they can't get there, and it becomes evident to them that they've got no other options. And so they huck Jonah overboard, right? And then they begin to pray to this God that Jonah knows. And they begin to say, you know, don't blame us for this. Don't judge us. Please um, have mercy on us. They offer sacrifices, it says. And Jonah gets pitched over the side. And then God, it says, brings this whale to chomp him, right? And, 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 and maybe it was a fish, right? It's a fish. It's just like we always think it's a whale, right? We don't know what it is. It's a fish, a big fish. Big enough to eat Jonah, eats Jonah, right? And Jonah goes in, is in the belly of the whale. And while Jonah is in the belly of the whale, he begins to pray. Now he begins to pray. And if you look, and if you look through that prayer, what you'll see is a very selfish prayer, a prayer that's all about Jonah. It doesn't really have much to do with the world around him or the heart that he's supposed to have or that God wants to begin to instill in him. It's just this prayer about his own salvation and all of this kind of stuff. And so we see that a little bit later, God causes this fish to throw Jonah up onto the, just, just to vomit him up onto the, onto the beach right in Nineveh, right in the very place that he didn't want to go. So this thing is taking man. God, remember, God is orchestrating all of this stuff. Nothing is outside of his control. And so Jonah gets up, and God tells him again, go to these people. Their time is almost over. You've got to go and warn them. And so Jonah, he kind of does, right? He goes into the city, and he begins to say, look, 40 days, and that's it. And, and God is going to judge you. 
And much to his dismay, they repent. They begin to turn. They begin to change. See, when he begins to go in, and, and, and even, even though his heart isn't perfect and it's not right, his message is right, and his message is ordained, and, and the people begin to repent. It gets all the way up to the king, and the king calls for a time of fasting and repentance and all of this stuff. And, and the people of Nineveh begin to repent. And you know what it says, Jonah, when he saw them repenting, he said this. He said, Lord, I knew. I knew this would happen, dang it. I knew you would be compassionate and loving and caring and forgiving and long and all of these things. And I knew it, dang it, that you would, you will extend probably your grace to these people now that they're repenting. And God does. God, God relents his judgment against them and he, and he backs off because, because these people have, re, have, have repented. And you know what Jonah wants to do at that point? He wants to die. He, he wants to die because they've repented. He just wishes he was dead rather than see them repentant. And so then what does he do? He goes up on a big hill, right? He goes up on a hill and he makes himself this little spot so that he can watch what's going to happen because he thinks that God might just still smoke these people like that fire might come down. He might just have the bird's eye view to get to watch them burned to a crisp. And, and it says that God causes this little shade tree thing, this little vine to come up, and, and it's giving him shade. And he really likes that vine. He thinks it's great. And he gets really attached to it because this vine provides all kinds of comfort for him. It, it provides shade and comfort. It's making his view just, that, it's just making him that much more comfortable while he watches the destruction of an entire nation. But then God causes that vine to die. God takes that thing of comfort away from Jonah. He, he kind of just, and, and Jonah is so mad. He's so angry. And still, at the end of the story, his view is that God is like, look, is your heart right about this? That you would care more about this little vine and your comfort than you would about an entire nation of people. Is that right? Is that, is that where we should be? And you know what Jonah said? He said, yeah, I'm right to be that mad, and I still want to die because these people have repented because you've let up on them. Sometimes I think that in the church, we've, we've, we've become so divisive as a nation. We've, we've got so much division that's going on within the church that out there, we, we would rather see them die than see them repent. We've, we've made flesh our enemy, which we're told not to do, that we don't fight against flesh and blood, but that we fight against the powers and the principalities that are in a supernatural realm. So we would contrast this story to Jesus Right? And if we looked at chapter 4 of Mark, at the end of this chapter, and on into chapter 5, what we would see is we would see that Jesus, that as he's going, and he is going all over the place, he is continually doing ministry. He's always doing ministry. He's always reaching out. He's going all over the place. He's going into all the cities and all the towns and all the places all around him. When we get to the end of chapter 4, it says that he has this incredible crowd of people that are following him an amazing amount of people. And he's been ministering to them and he's been healing them and he's been 
helping them. He's been sharing with them and he's been doing all this work. And then he tells his disciples, he says this, get in the boat. We got to go. We're getting in the boat and we're going across the, 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 the sea here. And, and, and so just get in and let's go. So they get in the boat and they leave this huge crowd of people, which I'm in a hold that we would have never done. We would have said, this is where the ministry is. Look at what God is doing. There are thousands of people here. This is what happens in the church today and in the modern church. We, we begin to, to see success. We, we, we put numbers into it in dollars. And we begin to, to say, this is what success looks like in the kingdom. But Jesus kind of didn't do that, did he? And, and, and Jesus said, okay, look, we're going across this sea. And, and you know who they were going for? They were going for one guy. The Bible calls him the demoniac. The guy who was so consumed by demonic oppression in his life that he, he could do nothing. He was oppressed. He was, he was living in the tombs. He was crying out at night. He was cutting himself with stones. He was in utter agony and distress. His life was so broken. And he had nobody. Ah, but he had Jesus. And Jesus left what was the ministry the day before for the ministry that the Holy Spirit had told him, now this guy is the ministry and we're going across the lake. We're going across the sea. Sea of Galilee there. And it says that Jesus went to sleep on the boat. Notice any similarities here. But think about Jesus' heart. And, and just now, like, like now there's a storm too that, that, that begins to rise up and come against them. It's, it's impeding their progress. And now everybody thinks they're gonna die on this boat as well. And Jesus is sleeping on the back of this boat. And they finally, they wake him up and they're like, don't you care if we all die? And it says that Jesus stands up and he rebukes the, way, the wind and the waves and everything goes still. See, because he is God, right? He doesn't need to try to petition God or, or any, he is God. He's, he's the ruler over these things. He's, he's the commander over the wind and the waves. And it says that he stills everything. And it freaks his disciples out big time. They're like, whoa, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who, who does this? And so then they go on, right? And they, they reach the shore. And it says that this guy runs down, maybe with the last hint of his humanity that was left in him. And he runs to Jesus' feet and he throws himself at his feet. And it says that Jesus delivers him of all of that. And I just, I, I think about this heart, this contrast between Jonah, who maybe sometimes represents our heart and how we go about ministry and, and Jesus's, right? Who's willing to leave, like he says, he's that good shepherd who will leave the 99 and go after the one and bring deliverance and freedom and hope for this guy. He sets this guy free into ministry. He sends him into the Decapolis. Who knows what all became of that ministry, you see, sometimes that ministry that we have is just to the one. It's not always to the masses. It's not always a big deal. We never know what God might do through one life. And so, so Jesus, he stills that. And what, what do we see in Jesus? Well, we see Jesus take a seat over the top of Jerusalem at a certain point too, right before his crucifixion. And instead of sitting there, Um, just waiting to see the thing burn down, he, he's sitting there weeping because he says that I long to gather you all like a, like a hen 
gathers her chicks under my wings to protect you and to have you. And, and it says that he wept. And what a different heart that Jesus has than ours. You know, that, that idea of Jonah and him being asleep, I, you know, if you, if you don't know me, I spent like a little over 20 years as a horse trainer. And, and, and the worst horse I could ever have was one that wouldn't move its feet. If it wouldn't move, I didn't care how they moved. I didn't care how wild they were. I didn't care if they were trying to kick my head off. I would always prefer that to one that would not move. You see, because what happened is that, is that if they would give me movement, my job as the trainer was to shape that movement into something useful. And there was this thing out there, it used to be popular, it probably still is, I, wish, I always wished I could eradicate it. It was called imprint training. And it was a deal where you took your foal and you started to kind of just mess with them and you got them gentle. And if you do that right, with the right understanding, the right concepts of it, you, you, it works. But most people didn't really understand it. And what they ended up doing was they ended up just continually just putting pressure on this cold until pressure meant nothing. It was just kind of like, just so overwhelmed and so saturated with stuff, with being petted, with not moving, with, with all of a sudden pressure had no meaning to it, that they was just like this. Kind of like the church and being asleep at times. And so what would happen for me as a trainer is I would have a terrible time with this horse because in order to get it to move, it would require me to put an inordinate amount of pressure on it. It took way more pressure to get that one to move than one that had never had that kind of experience. And so, so for me, I always, you know, that, that was the worst one I could have. But you see, again, it's that idea that if it would just take a step, if it would move, then I could begin to use that movement. This is with God and the church, but we have to move. We have to be a church that's ready to go, to go the right way, not the wrong way, to be a part of the community, not to insulate ourselves from the community in which we find ourselves. So, <clears throat> how are we doing? Well, I'll give you some stats, and for whatever they're worth, they're just out there. Between 2012 and 2015, depression in boys increased by 21% and girls by 50%. Um, 2017 study of 8th to 12th graders found that high levels of depressive symptoms increased by 33%. Between 2010 and 2015, suicide rate for girls in this age group increased by 65%. Right now, child suicide rates have increased up to 150%. Self-harm by girls, 10 to 14, has tripled. Um, and these patterns point to social media and the effects that it's having on people's brains and, and understanding of identity and self and what it is to have value and worth. Um, since the release of smartphones, mental health concerns have increased in children and young adults. Uh, the rate of adolescents reporting symptoms of major depression in a given year has increased by 52%. From 2005 to 17, um, and from, from 9 to 17, it grew by 63% in adults aged 18 to 25. Um, people experiencing psychological distress in a given month grew 71% in young adults from 2008 to 17. And even worse, the rate of suicidal thoughts in young adults has increased 47% during that same time. Uh, since Roe v. Wade, we've had 62 million abortions. And to put that in a little bit of context, in 
in all of the wars that the United States has ever fought in, we've lost 1.1 million soldiers, um, but 62 million children, and the capacity, uh, the, uh, the, the brilliance, the potential that was lost to that. Mass shootings are on the rise. Addiction is on the rise. Alcohol sales are through the roof. We have just a crisis of, of um, addiction. The overdose rate um, has risen, and in 28 states, it's, they've seen an increase of over 30%. There's a 25% increase in homicides. Um, pornography use has increased uh, somewhere between 38 and 61% in 2020, and America leads the world in pornography production. We have an identity crisis. Transgenderism is on the rise. Um, youth are at younger and younger and younger ages are struggling with the reality of their gender and who they are. Homelessness is up by 15%. Suicide is rising among the young. And we live in the number one per capita state in the nation for suicide. And within our county right here, we're always at the very top as well within that state. Um, our trust in the government and one another is waning. Today in the world, there are 400,000 people. Today in the United States, there are 400,000 people in modern slavery. There are 45 million people in the world and more than any time in human history. In 1860, um, a slave sold for what would be the modern-day equivalent of $40,000. Today, a slave sells for 90 bucks on average. A guy named Reith, uh, Jeffrey Curtis Poor um, did an article called Rethink on May 31st of 2016. And he began to talk about the church and what it would look like for the church to be the church. And, and he talked about, in particular, about giving. And he gave some of these stats. He says, today, church people give at a rate of about 2.5% per capita. In the Great Depression, Christians gave it 3.3%. Currently, only 10 to 25% of the congregation gives a full tithe. Only 3 to 5% of Americans give regularly to church. Roughly 20% of America attends church regularly, and regularly these days is one to two times per month. So that's about 65 million people. If all of those households basically gave at roughly a 10%, and I'm not trying to throw that out there, it's about being a cheerful giver, but we're going to use 10%, um, that would total over $400 billion. With $400 billion, we could add a church campus ministry to the 1,800 prisons that are in America. America leads the rate right now of, of people that are incarcerated. We could build 5,500 family counseling centers. We could provide debt and financial management training across the nation. We could eliminate the financial burden of adoption from foster care. With $25 billion in five years, we could relieve global hunger and provide medicine for preventable diseases. We could eliminate illiteracy. $15 billion per year could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. We could free people living in slavery. There are 205 million professing Christians in the United States, and out of, that's out of 329 million, and there are 2.3 billion Christians in the world. Now, I got to say that I'm going to challenge those things. There may be people who check a box, but I promise you there are not over half of America are following Christ. But here's the reality, is that God has placed us here now and on purpose, that we've been placed within this community to make a difference. And what does that look like? That looks like, A, that we begin to participate within the church community. 
that we take it seriously, that we recognize that this is, this is a, a, a privilege, that this is what Jesus died for, was for the church, so that we could have this, so that we could have this fellowship, and not just for ourselves, because you see, the crazy thing about the church is the church is an institution that exists for those who aren't part of it. The reality of all of our healing and all of our growth and all of that has an end game. It has an end run, and the end run is to go out the door and to affect the change in the community around us, to love people so well that they see the life and the light of Jesus in us and in our lives. But we got to be a church, and I've heard this many times. I think that there's a lot of this that's being echoed. We have to wake up. We've got to recognize the reality of the storm that is going on out there. And again, we need to not just insulate ourselves from that. We need to not insulate ourselves in here from that. And we need to not insulate ourselves within our neighborhoods from that. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. We've been given the, the keys that unlock, that help people to find a pathway to eternal life, to life with Jesus. And you see, the, the division and the struggle within the world around us has just left us in this place where we're, we're truly just hating on one another. See, we're called to be peacemakers, not, not peacekeepers, peacemakers. That means we're going out and we're making peace. We're finding people. We're, we're talking with people. We're reintroducing. How about if we reintroduced the concept and the idea of open dialogue and, 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 the, and we started to realize that, that Actually starting to hear from somebody and hear their side and dialogue with somebody is, is actually a pathway towards making peace. But where are we at? We're a nation right now, and this is the reality of where we're at, is that we've, we've drawn lines in the sand and we've, we've, we've isolated ourselves in our camps, one on, one on one camp, one on the other camp. And we're being fed through those camps, man, just stuff that agrees with us, all about what agrees with us. It's just being pumped into our lives just time after time. There are algorithms literally on everything that you're doing that, that, that already know what you're into and what you want to hear and what will produce income. I'm going to say that as the church, I'm not saying there aren't things out there or views or, or, or that, that are wrong. There are. That's the very point. But you see, the church can't just continue to be this thing that talks about what we're against and never talks about what we're for. We can't just come against the world. We've got to come for the world, just like Jesus came for us. We've got to start breaking down some of the barriers of the world around us, not building new ones and keeping ourselves outside of that. It's, it's not going to end well. We're in a power struggle right now. That's the reality of the world that we're living in. And power struggles only end when somebody is able to exert more power over someone else. They don't end well. We have a power. We have a power that is in complete contradiction to the ways of the world, that, that makes no good sense in reality to us. It wouldn't seem to work except, man, it's been working pretty well for a long time. What, what, should, have, what should have died out with about 20 people has grown to the church today, but now it's on us. The, the baton, the torch has been passed on to us as the church, and what are we going to do with it? There's a place for politics, and, and, and there's an important place for politics. But I'm going to say this. Politics are the last line of defense, not the first. Politics, our politics are a reflection of the world that we're living in. It's a reflection of the world that we've created around us right now. And, and the reality that, that, that the, of the politics and some of the 
screwed up, messed up stuff about the politics that we're dealing with and living with today is because we lost the spiritual, we've lost some of the spiritual battles. And we forgot that this is a spiritual battle and that the church has been called to be something different, to be ambassadors. Again, we talked about that an ambassador is living in a foreign place, that he lives in an embassy, and, and that he brings and reflects the, the, the values and the principles and the rule and the law of the kingdom that sent him. We've been sent from a different kingdom. We've been sent by the one who is truly king, the king of kings. And we've been given a commission. We've been given the privilege to join him in what he wants to do in this world. So, Lord, may it be. May, may we just, may we reflect you. May we, may we really recognize what it is that you're calling us to. May we rise up as the church, Lord. May we wake up as your bride. May you stir us to the point, Lord, that we wake up and that we recognize that you've, you've called us to pray and to move, to be your hands and feet in this world, to, to, to be a part of what you've put together, to reject the things of the world and the kingdom of the world, and to embrace and to place our treasure in your kingdom, knowing that wherever we put our treasure, that our heart also is there. So Lord, may we put our heart in a place that, that has eternal benefit, that has eternal value. Lord, may we be a people who, who love well. May we not seek the destruction of others. May we recognize that we don't do battle against flesh and blood. That yeah, people may be working for the enemy, but they're not the enemy. That he's far greater and far more than that. And that his his plan is to bring division. His plan is to bring isolation. But Lord, your plan is for community and for this community in particular to go out and to reach those who aren't a part of it. So Lord, may we just do that this day. May we recognize the high calling and the privilege that you're calling us to. May we be willing to, to sacrifice as you did for the benefit of others so that we might see the change in the world that we really desperately wanna see. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.